Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello, fans of Shuklistan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you? Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, indeed. If you are listening to us on the day this episode drops, it is Thanksgiving Day in the United States. So I don't know about you, but I'm busy eating. Full of turkey. Well, I, I won't say full of pie. I actually don't like pie. That's my oh, controversial really? statement for the show. I don't <sighs> like pie. Wow. What don't you like about pie? I don't like squishy fruit. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm not a huge fruit pie person myself, but we'll have some bourbon pecan pie in my house. And that's delicious. I don't like that either. <laughs> but you know what I do like? What do you like? Our Patreon patrons. Oh, yes. Oh, our Patreon patrons are great. And this week we are celebrating gold medal patron Jennifer Schultz, who joined us during Tokyo 2020 in the Patreon family. That was so exciting. She is so much fun to chat with. And uh, we really loved hanging out with her virtually over chat, over email, over... (laughs) In the, in the Facebook group. During Tokyo. So we really appreciate your support, Jennifer. If you would like to be a Patreon patron of the week, check out patreon.com slash pod. We know that Patreon is for people who make ongoing contribu- contributions to the show every month. We really appreciate that. We understand that not everybody can do that. So we have added more options for one-time donations on our website. Check out flamealivepod.com slash support for those options. And you know what? Comes after Thanksgiving Day, Allison. Black Friday and people can buy our t-shirts. That's right. We'll have a link to our tea Public merch store. We have some swank new designs from Listener Don. We have a whole Shukflistan wardrobe you can wear for Beijing. Excellent. And uh, after Black Friday is? I don't know. Well, it's technically, if you wanted to keep going through the days of the week, it's Small Business Saturday. Well, we're a small business. We are a small business. So what else we have is our Tokyo 2020 viewing guide has been updated to include the Paralympic results. So if you have that already, you can read through it and get the, the results of the Paralympics or brush up on trivia. Or if you don't have it, it's just a couple of bucks. So download your copy today. That would be helpful as well for our small business. Sunday, I think, is day of rest, as well it should be. And then Monday. Cyber Monday. Cyber Monday. So get all of our stuff online again. And then it's Giving Tuesday. Oh, that's right. And you can give to us in the form of donations. So we have more options on uh, flamealivepod.com slash support. There's PayPal. There's Venmo. By the time it is Giving Tuesday, we will add buy me a coffee. Or there's a couple of like buy me a coffee links where you can just give a couple of bucks, which would be like, oh, hey, instead of having a coffee today, or in my case, a Diet Coke, I'm going to give that money to you instead. So we would really appreciate that support. The show is very expensive to produce. As we said before during Tokyo and while we had our Kickstarter campaign, that trip is extremely expensive. 
the Kickstarter funds cover a portion of it. And by a portion, I mean we are taking unpaid leave of absences to make sure this happens. So it's that kind of element of putting this show together that uh, makes it really expensive. And we do appreciate all the support you give. Uh, we appreciate support Jennifer gives this week and all of our other patrons. And even if you say, I have no gold to give, please tell your friends about the show. Talk about us online. Write reviews for us. That helps get the word out so that more people can find the show as well. And the more listeners we have, the more fun we all have, too. Beijing is coming. That's right. So today, it's time to take a look back. We are talking with some Shuklastanis who were in Tokyo, and we're talking about the experiences they had at the Games. First up is our archery official, Hannah Brown, who was the head judge of the Olympic Archery Tournament. Take a listen. Does it feel like Tokyo ever happened? No, not really. It's kind of weird. It's kind of like, yeah, back to reality and then cracking on. And it's, yeah, it's all kind of weird. Yeah, back to normality quite quickly. What was getting there like and having to deal with the bubble? So getting there for us, being from the UK, was made somewhat more challenging because we were put on their kind of red or amber list, which meant we had to take, even more tests than everybody else. So I had to get tested three consecutive days before I flew, which meant three trips to the airport before the day I actually fly. Then the face masks on the plane, that was interesting for a 12-hour flight. And then the arrival, I've got to say, I'd heard some real horror stories about the arrival procedure and how long it had taken people to get through the arrivals and being sorted out, going for your test, getting all the information, waiting for your results. And I'd heard some people were taking up four or five hours to do it. But of course, either our plane landed and there was nobody else in the airport, but it took me two and a half hours to get from landing to my hotel. They were really well organized, really, really well organized. And the Japanese staff there were just so spot on and friendly and they knew exactly what to do. So actually getting there was apart from the hassle of all the tests beforehand, was relatively straightforward. Then we were bubbled. Uh, we were bubbled in our hotel as the group of officials. That was tough because you couldn't go anywhere other than your hotel room or the venue. So that made life quite tricky, really. But it just meant that when you were at the venue, it was sort of like a little bit of freedom and you were, you were out chatting to as many people as you could. But yeah, it was certainly a different experience. That had to be hard being in the same hotel with your officiating buddies but not being able to, like, pop over to somebody's room and say hello, right? Yeah, that was really quite tricky because you wanted to because you'd been on the field all day and your brain told you that actually, what did it matter? Because I've been with this person all day, so why would it make any difference? But the rules were there. The rules were that you couldn't. So everybody was abided by it. It was quite interesting because the only time you interacted with anybody in the evenings was when you were waiting in the lobby for your food because... We weren't allowed into the hotel restaurant because that was open to the public. So we were bubbled away from them. And we therefore had to use Uber Eats to get our food. So you would order it from inside your room and then you would go down to the lobby to collect it. And there was sort of like this gamble as to whether or not you would catch somebody in the lobby and have a 10 minute conversation whilst you were waiting for your food or not. And, and that was the contact that you had with people in the evening. That was it. Wow. Uh, how long were you in Tokyo? So I flew out on the 18th of July, and I flew back on the 2nd of August. 
so I landed back here on the second. Just under two weeks. How many officials were on the crew total? So there was me and thirteen others. So okay. there was fourteen of us out there, and then you had all the all the other staff that would run the event, and also joining us was the national technical officials. So that was a whole whole bunch of Japanese judges um, with a couple of extras from some other other locations that had been flown in to assist. So there was about twelve of those as well that then assisted with running the practice field, running the targets, doing the scoring to assist us with the main official roles. So I guess in total there was about 20, 22 of us as a team of officials. So what was it like during competition versus the test event? I've got to say the competition was kind of odd. And I think talking to people who were at other events, they were of a similar kind of, of feeling. It was, you knew it was the Olympics. It was all branded as the Olympics, but everything was so quiet. Tokyo was quiet. There wasn't any branding around the city. It was all very, very much a, a quiet Olympics. But then when you talk to people and you talk to the athletes, it was the Olympics. So there was the buzz between the athletes because it was their games. They were out there. They were at the Olympics. It's just such a shame that you had all these wonderful facilities and the stadiums and they were just empty. It was such a shame that it was there was just no no external buzz or nothing in the stadiums to give anything back to the athletes, really. We felt that on t- well, watching it on TV. I mean, the competition was so incredible across so many sports, and you just felt mm. so bad that all of these athletes who were doing amazing things just got no energy or, mm. you know, the, the other athletes would try, but it was just so quiet yeah. and so empty and, and just sad. It was. It was really, it was really quite somber in places, and and you felt so much for the athletes because, you know, you'd have the commentary on site and the the sort of like the they were they were shouting out that they were scoring the tens and the perfect scores, and normally you would get the cheers and the claps and the the hooting from the crowds, and it was just well, nothing. You know, they they shoot a perfect score and they get no feedback from anybody, and it's. I guess for the athletes, they got used to that during the season because all of the qualification events and all of the World Cup events throughout the season had been really, really similar. They would all, they'd all been behind closed doors, if you like, because they hadn't had the fans. So it kind of followed on. I don't know what it was like with other sports, whether or not they had fans, but it was, it was probably like the the final event for them of their their warm ups and their season. And it was just the same as what they got used to for the rest of the year. But it was still. I wouldn't say an anti-climax because that would be wrong, but there just wasn't any buzz about it. The the whole place was a bit sort of just, yeah, it's the Olympics. But there wasn't that buzz that you come to expect with the Olympic Games. What was the weather like? Because your competition was kind of long and it seemed like the weather changed during it. It, it, it was changeable. We had some very, very hot, sticky, humid days. I mean, we think we had one day where it was, it was about 38 degrees with a feels like 42 and something like 90% humidity. So that was tough. Those days were tough. And then we had another day where we actually had to change the schedule because of the typhoon warnings. And we were out in what was gale force winds and rain the following day, even though it wasn't typhoon, but it was windy and it was wet and it was rainy. So it, it was changeable. Um, and I know the Paralympics had some really horrible weather and they, they had some consistent rain throughout a lot of their event. But we were generally quite lucky. We were dry apart from 
the odd bit on one day and it was warm and it was sticky and it was very different to what we used to in the UK. <laughs> so did that have an effect? Because in the beginning of the tournament when I was watching, it'd be like sometimes they'd score a random two. And I just wondered where were these low scoring arrows coming from? I don't know. They they were quite random. Yeah, there was the, the heat. The heat would have played a major part in a lot of the athletes because it wasn't their normal temperature. The humidity, I think, was probably the worst thing to try and deal with. And the fact that it was, it may have affected the grip on the bow, it may have affected the grip on the string. So it could have affected sort of technique-wise, but it also, I guess, adds to your fatigue um, if, if you've not eaten or drunk enough. But again, it could be, it could just be the pressure of the situation and the mental game. There's so many factors that, that would affect that one particular shot. It could have been any number of them. But yeah, there were definitely some random arrows that you saw and it was like sort of not what you would expect. Yeah, it was just, it was really incredible. Also incredible was uh, Mete Gazos coming out of seemingly nowhere to take the gold in the men's tournament. When you are watching the tournament, do you know what's happening results-wise or do you block that out? I think generally at other events, I haven't, I haven't known what's been going on. And people ask you at the end of the event who won and I was like, I don't have a clue. I've just, I've just been there, done my job and I, and I don't know. But I think this... This was different. It was the Olympics, and there there was a lot more sort of involvement, I guess, with where I was sitting because I was I was sitting right on the corner of the field of play, so I could actually see all of the matches and all of the athletes leave the field. So I got more of a sense of who was winning the matches and who wasn't as they left the field, which for other events you don't get. So yeah, I mean, he did. He, he clawed his way through the field, and he wasn't. He wasn't the rank outsider. He was he was in there with a with a good chance, and yeah, he did he did exceptional. That final match was amazing. Have you watched any of the matches back afterwards? No, I haven't. To be honest, I came back and I watched all all of the other games that was on the television at the time, but I, I haven't gone back and looked at them. It's, I was there, so you don't need to. Is it? You were there. It was part of you. You. Yeah, I've watched the rest of the Olympics because it's the Olympics and I love the sports. But it's you've seen the you've seen the archery. It's done it. It's there. You know what, what the outcome is. How was your crew? How did they perform? Was it up to expectations? Did you lose anybody due to the weather? The my crew and the, my judging team they were fantastic. They were they were a really good solid bunch of judges. They knew what they were doing. They worked hard, um, and I couldn't have asked for any more from them. We were really, really lucky as an event as a whole because we didn't lose anybody to any positive COVID tests, didn't lose anyone to any close contacts or any isolation. So that made life so much easier because we didn't have to rejuggle the plans. Plan A went as plan A went and I didn't have to reshuffle anyone. So we had no athletes get pinged we had no officials get pinged we had no athletes go positive or get sick because that would have been really nasty if, if you got pinged or if you got a positive test and have to pull out of your olympics that would have been quite horrific for them but but no we were really lucky that we didn't have any of that are you ready for paris now i'd love to go to paris paris would be amazing and hopefully by paris life will be back to a little bit more normal or whatever the new normal is going to be and we'll be able to go and, and experience the olympics as the olympics go and see some of the other sports go and interact with the athletes a bit more but yeah i'd love to get to paris one last quick question did you know that they were showing the competitors heart rates on tv yes 
Okay, how did that work? So that was done through a camera, a special camera. They weren't ever fitted with any, any devices or anything. That was done through a special camera that was on the field. I, I don't know the technicalities of how it worked, but I know it added an extra feed for information so that the public and the fans and the people that were watching could see how it fitted with the match. And I think it adds that extra dynamic it, to, to what is actually going on in the athlete's body and their head and how they're reacting to the stress of the match. Oh, it was. It was fantastic. When I saw that pop up, it was so exciting. And then, then you you know when they hold the bow too long that it, it might yeah. be difficult. But then you could see the heart rate go up or down. And it just that really yeah. added a, a cool dimension to watching it. That, that kind of technology is going to come in, a, in quite a lot. It, it, was a good, it was a good tool. And I think, I think they trialed that kind of technology in London, I think, with maybe a heart rate band or something. There was something on their leg, I think, potentially, to see what, what it would do with the, with the figure and how it would fit in with the coverage. And I think they've obviously made it less intrusive with just the camera. But it, all of these kind of different feeds and these different bits to, to show people what's going on, I think, are great. It just makes people have a better understanding of what the sport is is there anything else about your tokyo experience that you could did you even get any souvenirs beyond like your uniform we were lucky we could order the tokyo 2020 souvenirs to the hotel so yeah we've got some pins i've got a cuddly toy and you know all the standard stuff that you get that's printed so i've got got a few of those to bring back with me and they're sitting on the shelf in the spare room at the moment so in my olympics collection excellent but, um, I think the one thing I'd like to say is that the Japanese volunteers that we had, they, they made those games the games. Yeah, we went out and we did our job, but we couldn't have done it without the volunteers. And when you look at what was going on in the country at the time and the, and the press that was in the country about COVID and the, the general kind of anti-Olympic movement that they had, these volunteers put themselves on the line. They came in every day with a smile on their face. Clearly the country were worried about foreigners coming in with COVID and spreading the disease but they came in nonetheless and they came in and they made those games so I think a massive shout out to the volunteers because if it wasn't for them we wouldn't have had a games no one would have had a games and it was a very different games but the games was made by the volunteers that's really special I mean wonderful yeah and you I mean I, I really I feel bad for we felt bad for the Japanese people not being able to get to experience the the games, mm. either the Olympics or the Paralympics. And it, yeah, it's so nice that we heard so many stories of the volunteers stepping up and doing just wonderful things and, and really making everyone feel as welcome as possible and making yeah. it as easy as possible for the... And, and they did. They were, they were magic. They were... They, they were just absolutely brilliant. Nothing was too much hard work. Everything you asked for got done. They did it with a smile on their face. And they were coming in to be a volunteer when perhaps family members, work, the public as a whole didn't want them to and didn't want anything to do with the games. And yet they did it. They, they were there and they were just absolutely phenomenal. They, when they got chance to sit in the stands and cheer because they had 10 minutes off, they did it and... They were just brilliant, and, you know, they made those games what they were. Fantastic. Well, Hannah, thank you so much. It's not the Olympics we were hoping for, but it was still a great competition and a great host city. So at least we have that to look back on. Yeah, we do, and I don't think we're ever going to have Olympics like that again. It's going to be a real 
Special Olympics and sort of it's kind of like the everybody sort of through the adversity of what COVID was and coming out of the other side to show that actually we can as a world pull together and it's kind of that special kind of it's not going to be like that ever again. Thank you so much, Hannah. Next up is artistic swimmer Jacqueline Simino, who since Tokyo has started med school. So we were lucky to have a few minutes to talk with her while she was driving home from class. Take a listen. Does Tokyo feel like it happened or like it's a million miles away? Oh, uh, you know, it's a strange feeling because I look back at pictures and it feels like it was just last week. But at the same time, I look at where I am now and I'm like, oh, wow, you know what? A lot has happened between now and then. So it's, it's a weird sort of sentiment. Let's talk a little bit about the journey. So wasn't Team Canada, your team, bubbled in like Vancouver or somewhere along the way before you went to Tokyo? Yeah, great memory, actually. So we uh, were in Europe for about two months and then came back to Montreal, which is our home base. But we had some restrictions related to COVID. So we went over to uh, Victoria, BC. So it's just a little island. It's Vancouver Island on the west side of Canada. And uh, we trained there. That was our pre-Olympic training camp. But unfortunately, that camp was supposed to be in Japan, in Suzuka, but they weren't supposed to accommodate us at that time due to COVID. So we ended up staying in our own country and doing our pre-training camp there. Wow. What was it like when you got to Japan and getting into the village and everything? Oh, <laughs> I don't know if you've heard different stories. I know I remember seeing on social media because our event was in the middle of end of the first week, in the middle of the game. So we arrived a couple of days before, but we missed the opening ceremonies. And so on social media, we saw all these athletes saying that it would take 10 to 12 hours to pass airport and pass all these protocols related to COVID and whatnot. But for us, it was quite linear. It was quite straightforward. We got off for our long flight and um, we were ushered through the airport to get our COVID test done. And thankfully, it was just a saliva test. So nothing really shoved up our nose or down our throats. But as soon as we got our negative results, we were ushered to the village. And there's where you get your accreditation and then you, you go see your apartment and really get to start to live the Olympic experience. What were the apartments like and were those cardboard beds comfortable? <laughs> Great question. I'll, I'll start with the beds first. <laughs> I had, the, <laughs> I had the, the opportunity to use this biomechanic scanner that was in the athlete's village. So what this scanner does is that you go to this part of the village and they take your height, your weight, and then they scan your body and kind of look where your center of gravity would be and where your weight is distributed in your body. And where your weight is distributed in your body, they were able to tailor your mattress to your weight. So I like to look at it as Legos. We had three Lego blocks and they were these like cardboard styrofoam type beds. If, if you flip the styrofoam on the other end, it would either be firmer or softer. But despite me maybe tailoring it to my knees, I think it was just a pillow that threw me off in my sleep or maybe just the excitement of competing at the game. <laughs> Um, I didn't really get the <laughs> best sleep, but uh, I'm going to blame that on the excitement. And when it comes to the apartments, we were very lucky in the Canada building. We were uh, had the amazing view of the, the harbor and the Rainbow Bridge. So we had uh, a view from our balcony that you saw the water, the Olympic rings. Uh, it was fantastic. You know, compared to the real Olympic Games, yes, it was a little bit smaller, but as expected from Japan, it was smaller beds, smaller apartments. But... Nonetheless, it was still uh, an amazing experience to live in an apartment 
That, that is cool. Did you get much opportunity to talk with athletes from other countries outside of your sport? This time around, there wasn't as big as an opportunity as there was in Seattle. Due to COVID-related protocols, in the Canada building, we were fortunate that once we finished competing, the restrictions on us loosened up a little bit, so we were able to talk with other sports and, and kind of have a, a closer distance between each other, obviously still with our masks on. So you still get to connect. But it's definitely different. It does hinder kind of the communication. When you don't really understand, you have a mask in front of you. And, and even in the cafeteria, I remember in Rio meeting incredible USA athletes, you know, like Michael Phelps and, and Simone Biles, and even you stayed both from Jamaica in that matter. That all happened in the cafeteria. But this time around, unfortunately, that, that didn't happen because we had these, these plexiglasses that were up, and you couldn't really you know, have proper conversations. And I you know right so I don't, What a bummer. We saw some Instagram videos from different athletes around showing us the cafeteria and the food. How was the food? I'm a big foodie, so I, I tried a lot of different things. It was good, honestly. You had an array of choices. I mean, you could wake up at 7 a.m., you want pizza, you have pizza. You want, I don't know, egg, steak, chicken, salmon, fish, anything at any hour of the day, you name it, they have it. So it's fantastic How was the pool? I mean, this time around, you didn't have the green water that they had in Rio, but <laughs> what were the facilities like? Yeah, the facility was, was amazing. The pool was brand new. And, you know, one thing that not a lot of people know about artistic swimmers is that our pool temperature is actually different than the swimmers. So one of our biggest concerns going into Japan was actually the pool water temperature because swimmers who had their event right before it to be exact same pool like to have their water, I, I could be wrong, but maybe around like 25, 26 degrees Celsius. And we like to have our training pool around 29. And this is in Celsius on Fahrenheit, but it is a big difference, especially when it comes to, you know, that little 1% more that you're looking to achieve at the Olympic Games. But the, they managed to heat up the pool at the perfect temperature right for when it was our warm-up time. So the temperature was great. The facility was fantastic. The only thing that was really missing was the audience the crowd. I'm not gonna lie, it was a little underwhelming walking out into silence and just hearing the flashes of cameras and it was great. Uh, particularly for my team who had a lot of young members on the team and perhaps the crowd may have affected their concentration. So in this case it really helped us to hone down and focus on their performance. But at the same time it wasn't I, I, I know I'm comparing it to Rio, but for me it wasn't as magical per se. That totally makes sense. Do you remember if Marnie McBean showed up at Artistic Swimming oh, with the did. with the drum? Oh, she did. Yeah, with the drum. I, I lost eye contact with her after one of our duet performances, and I saw her there with that drum, and it, it just meant so much to have her there in the stands to support us. Performance-wise, personal best scores. I mean, A, it was so much fun watching Team Canada throughout the whole competition, but it, you and Claudia did so well in the duet, and it was so great to see the teams get personal bests and everything. How was that? Did you feel it as you competed that you all were doing really well and really in sync with each other? Not that we struggled with our preparation, but the thing with this other sport is that you need to have, at least in the duet event, two athletes 
speak at the exact same time. Not only the exact same day, but the exact same time to the minute. So where your mental focus is on point, your physical game is there, and both of us just click at the exact same time. And I think that's a big thanks to our coach getting us in the right mindset. Because when we dove into that water, we could just feel like we were on the same energy, the same wavelength, and giving out that much of strength and power that we're known for. And so coming out and moving up two rates is, is huge in our sport. Not alone, I mean, getting also a personal best, but our sport is it's, it's quite subjective. It's, it's rare that you see big leaps like that in the rankings. And for us to go from seventh to fifth and, uh, you know, pushing for our fourth, we were really pleased with that. Excellent. Uh, yeah, it was just, it was fun to watch you. How was it because your sport did have a COVID situation with the Greek team having to pull out? How was that and affected the rest of the teams? It did instill some doubts into my teammates' minds because the Greek team did actually come and train prior to the big competition pool opening. So we shared uh, warm up seasons with them. I was a big concern with us. And our, our coach was fantastic. I mean, he was like, if the great team is using the changing room, none of you are going. I'm sorry, you are holding in your piece. Or, you know, if you, we, we are managing the situation, we are keeping our two-meter distance from everybody until we are done competing. So our staff managed us really, really well. But at the same time, when you're in the water, it's hard to maintain that distance. Even though you are in high school, you have, you know, 50, 60 swimmers in there. And you're all trying to do your best that you can to, to warm up and prepare yourself. So you, there are, there is, you know, some crossing that's happening, and that that was a little, a little doubtful for us. And it was, it was really sad to see that, you know, the Greek two I got the chance to compete one event, and then after that, more people had more testing positive. And it, it's sad to know that these people have worked so hard just to get there, and they've arrived here, and unfortunately, they're they're not able to compete and achieve one of their lifelong dreams because of it. You got to go to closing ceremonies. How was that? It was fun. Similar to the kind of feeling that I felt walking out for the first time uh, in Tokyo for performing, and that feeling is it's a little underwhelming. You know, you walk out and you're told to smile and wave, but you don't know who you're waving to. The stands are empty. <laughs> the cameras are so cool. But the part that I truly enjoyed and that I'll always remember about these Tokyo closing ceremonies is the fact that it was actually quieter. So it now was a chance that closing ceremony was for you to connect with other athletes. I got to catch up with other Canadian athletes, meet athletes from around the world. We had that luxury of having a little bit more silence in the stadium, probably more silence in the stadium than there was on TV. So it gave us a chance to really connect and then have these great discussions with other athletes. And that's the part that I'll always remember. Very cool. Were you able to get any kind of cool souvenirs or swap pins with anybody else? Oh, yes. So my goal was to get more pins than I did in Rio, and I think I succeeded. Got a lot of pins. And in terms of souvenirs, I was really hoping to get these copper cups that had the Tokyo kind of symbol on it. But unfortunately, they were all sold out even before I got into the village. So missed out on that souvenir, but the memories forever. Excellent. So now you're in med school. How is life now? It's different. I got to say, it, it was quite the adjustment at first, but I'm loving every second of it. You know, after Tokyo, I felt ready to take on new challenges. And this time, it's not necessarily a physical challenge. It's more of a mental challenge. Going to school in my second language and then just learning this lump sum of information and being able to just sit it out on demand. It's fun. I love it. It's challenging. I'm able to apply 
uh, how packed are your days? They depend. They really vary from day to day. I have clinical rotations starting up next week. So I finished a big chunk of the main theory portion that I need to know before heading into some basic clinical rotation. So my days go anything from 8 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. Sometimes I have classes that finish at 10 p.m. because clinicians are only available after they're done working. So it's, you know what? Some people, sorry, I know I'm jumping from point to point, but a lot of skills that we learn as an athlete transfer on into anything in everyday life. So I know a lot of people that I program are, are struggling balancing time, but with my training hours in the past, when I trained 46 to 60 hours a week, I was physically and mentally exhausted. And now, yes, I have long hours, but you know, I'm not physically exhausted. So I'm still finding time to go to the gym, to exercise. And so I, that's one of the key points that I'm really glad that I was able to take that away and transfer on to, to you know, my studies. Very cool. So we did notice at the very end of the Olympics a hint of thinking about training for 2024. Is that thought, now that you're deep in school, is that thought still there? Oh, that's something that honestly I've been thinking about every single day. And it's hard because now that this Olympic quad, it's not a quad anymore. It's three years. It's so close I can almost taste it. But at the same time, I've achieved what I wanted to achieve in the sport. And I feel ready to move on to different challenges. But at the same time, the Olympics is just something that's so magical. And knowing that it's a possibility that I could probably go again if I wanted to, always stays in the back of my mind. So this year, I think I'm going to take it off for the season, focus on my studies. My federation does really want me to continue, but we'll see We'll see where that takes me. I'll revisit the idea in a year, maybe two, and, and see if it'll maybe fit in with uh, my schooling schedule. Excellent. Well, Jackie, we don't want to keep you any longer. Thank you so much for your time. It was so much fun to watch you compete at Tokyo. And we're so happy that you did achieve these goals of personal bests and did so well and had a great time. Oh, thank you so much. I always love chatting with you guys. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. Oh, man, it was so nice to hear what Tokyo was like. I know. I was very jealous because I was not able to be on the call with Jacqueline because she had this very tiny window that I could not match because now she's decided she has to be a doctor on top of a two-time Olympian and all-around awesome person. And it was really fun to listen to it again and to talk to Hannah again. Just to be back in that moment and the archery tournament was so bizarre in so many ways and to hear about the, the back end of that. Yes, that was really interesting. We heard about the beds. We've heard a lot about the beds. I did go back and watch some of the routines again. Oh, did you? <laughs> the sharks, <laughs> the baseball team, the story of evolution. <laughs> Just fantastic. What a what a great tournament the the artistic swimming program was. Welcome to Shuklistan. Well, speaking of Shuklistanis, it's time to check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. These are past guests of the show. It has been a week. Oh, my goodness. We thought we were going to do kind of like the short show because it's Thanksgiving, but our Shuklistanis have been killing it. And honestly, it's been just an amazing week for Shuklistan, starting with 
John Schuster, Team Schuster, won the U.S. Curling Olympic Trials and will be representing U.S. at Beijing 2022 in the Men's Curling Tournament. This is John's fifth Olympics. Nice. I think I watched all three of the final games because it was a best of three series. And they lost the first one, won the second. And so, of course, Sunday night was the third match. And it... It was intense. It was low scoring. Somebody had to make a mistake. Still, the final score was like 5-4 at the very end. And it just a couple of really beautiful shots by Team Schuster. And this is not entirely the same team from Pyeongchang. That is correct. Uh, the third, Tyler George, he retired after Pyeongchang. He's now like a U.S. curling ambassador. So he goes around the country to different curling clubs. But then the person who took his spot was Chris Plies. And Chris used to be on Team Dropkin, who was the team that Team Schuster beat. Oh, I didn't even know that part. Right. For the second More time. Drama. Because wow. they also beat Team Dropkin to get to Pyeongchang. Wow. Yes. So when Chris left to go to Team Schuster, Team Dropkin got Joe Polo. Joe Polo was the alternate for Team Schuster at Pyeongchang. This is like a bad soap opera of relationships. Yeah, I mean, but I think all, it's all very yeah, uh, oh, amicable. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's very friendly. It's a very sportsmanlike sport, to be quite honest. And they all know, they've known each other for years. A lot of people have played together on and offs. Chris Plies is also in the running to make it to the Olympics in the mixed doubles. So he and his partner, whose name escapes me right now, they won the U.S. tournament, but they have to go to an Olympic qualifier now. And so they'll be going to the Netherlands to compete in that. And okay, more good news. Tom Scott won bronze at the World Karate Championships. This was fantastic. Wasn't this like one of his first medals at Worlds? Yes. So happy for him. So excited. Aaron Jackson won gold and silver in the two 500-meter World Cup races at Estevangar, Norway this week, which was amazing. Four races. It's interesting. Well, A, it's interesting because 500 meters gets competed twice in a World Cup event. So she has gotten medals at all four races so far. Three gold. Three golds. One silver. And just is doing an amazing job. Her times have been blistering. Yeah, it's so amazing. We're hoping to catch up with Erin again and have her on the show. But our friend Elizabeth over at Hear Her Sports did a fantastic interview with Erin that got into some technical stuff, too. So uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. If you've got time, definitely give that a listen. Erin will be back in the U.S. competing in Salt Lake City December 3rd through the 5th, which that's a fast track. That's exciting. (laughs) Can you imagine her competing in Salt Lake next week? Oh, my goodness. If she blows the track record again. Right. But Patrick from Chicagoland has tickets to U.S. Olympic trials in Milwaukee. He's going to give us all the details. Yes, he he doesn't know it yet, but he will. No, he knows. (laughs) I've already said. (laughs) Details. He put it on Twitter. So, Patrick, details. And finally, Stephanie Robel and Maggie Shea finished eighth at the Sailing World Championships this week in Oman. Yeah, good for them. They were very pleased with their performance. So we have 
have a couple of things about Beijing 2022 that we wanted to talk about really quickly, but we couldn't let these sit. The first is the Where is Peng Shui saga. Do you know about this? Have you seen this? I have. It is disturbing, to say the least. So Peng Shui is a, a tennis player in China. She has been to several Olympics for playing tennis. And on November 2nd, she posted on social media that she had been sexually assaulted by a former vice premier in the country, in the Communist Party, very high up person. And that post got deleted very, very quickly. And she basically disappeared. And nobody from the the Women's Tennis Association could figure out where she was. They couldn't get a hold of her. And so that has prompted a whole campaign on social media. And there have been a lot of articles, especially in the New York Times, has been very good about writing some really in-depth articles about this situation. And that has kind of led the Chinese propaganda machine turning. And so they've produced photos of her. They've produced videos of her or her with some people out at dinner. And there was pretty much a call for the Olympics to do something because she is an Olympian. And if she has disappeared or is being held somewhere. Right. And of course, we've had all kinds of calls for boycotts of Beijing 2022 for other human rights issues. So this folds into that same concern. Exactly. So she did have a video call with Tibok to say that she is okay. And basically it's like, I'm okay. And I'd like people to leave me alone, which again, nobody knows that's the truth because the Women's Tennis Association still cannot get a hold of her. So no one is saying that video call was falsified or that the IOC is lying. That's not the issue. The question is, was she able to speak freely in her conversation with Thomas Bach? Which I think we can all pretty much agree. There's no way she could be speaking freely given the circumstances. Whether she's not okay or okay is not what I'm saying, but we all know that she was being watched in that call. So the WTA is threatening to pull tournaments out of China even though it's a huge market for them, but they are supposed to have a world championships there next year and several other tournaments. And they have said, we need to have access to her or we need to understand that she's okay and is speaking freely. Otherwise we will pull tournaments out. Good on the WTA for taking a stand. I totally agree that they are putting the athletes before money and before, I don't even know if you want to call it diplomacy. But they have said, we we don't care, China. We don't care if you have millions of dollars or billions of dollars and all of these fans. If it's a huge market for us, we need to know our athletes are safe. I can think of another organization who could take some notes on that. Oh, I don't know. They they might have the initials IOC. (laughs) You know, I got to say it was interesting where all this, hey, IOC, are you going to do something? Because they did say, we prefer quiet diplomacy. I was shocked about this phone call with T-Bock. One, that it happened, and two, that then they released the information from it. I'm not shocked that it seemed to be very hunky-dory. Oh, no. And everyone is just like, well, look at this. It's amazing. You know, everything is fine. You know, Peng Shui, would you like to have dinner when I'm when I there in, in Beijing for the Olympics? Come and have dinner with us. Hmm. So I, I think, and of course, I think, the IOC would 
take it at face value. Oh, look, we had this call. Everything is fine. We still prefer quiet diplomacy. Speaking of quiet diplomacy. Oh, my gosh. Oh, and that's a Lord Co. size sigh. Did oh, Sebco steps oh. into it again. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so in the U.S., uh, President Biden has said that there may be a diplomatic boycott of Beijing, that the U.S. may not send diplomats over to the opening ceremonies. For everybody who's been crying boycott, this is a nice solution. It doesn't hurt the athletes and still sends some kind of message, except for World Athletics President and Olympian and member of the IOC, Sebastian Coe, said in Inside the Games that a diplomatic boycott would only serve as a, quote, meaningless gesture, claiming non-engagement between government officials rarely bears fruit. I will give Sebco a pass on talking about this because he was a 1980 athlete. He did get to go, obviously. He was representing the UK. The UK did not boycott Moscow. But boycotts of any stripe probably hit a very personal note with him Mm. because of his experience in 1980. And he felt the need to speak out. Of course, it's a Winter Olympics. Seb Coe, your track and field, stick to your lane. But he does have a voice in the sense of he's one of those 1980 athletes. I, I can see that argument. And he is. He also said in this article that because he apparently talked about this on BBC Radio 4 and said nobody's going to miss a diplomat. You know who misses the diplomats? China will miss the diplomats. Because that's the other level here that we're talking about. It's very much come to our party, we make nice. They have the big world leaders soiree that we you know, heard mention of before. But, you know, they do get together. They do have conversations. And if you're not there, you're making a statement in a diplomatic way. Where Sebco put his foot in his mouth is that he pointed to the Berlin 1936 Olympics, claimed that uh, that those games demonstrated that sport can be, and I'm going to quote this, a very powerful driver of integration and change, end quote, following the success of African-American track and field star Jesse Owens. Okay, I have a rule for public officials. Never mention Nazis. <laughs> I say that, I don't know if I've ever said this before on the show, but I have said this, anyone who knows me and wouldn't be, just never mention Nazis. Because whether you mention it in a positive or in a negative, the minute Nazis come into the conversation, you have lost. Right. So everything Lord Coe said before and after the mention of the 1936 Nazi games is lost because that's the only thing anyone is ever going to focus on. Right. And the power of sport driving integration and change, I don't think it did. It it obviously did nothing because the Nazis still exterminated millions of Jewish people and other people as well. But they exterminated millions of people. And Jesse Owens came home to a horribly racist country and had difficult problems, which actually will I think we might get to see in race when we watch it for yes. movie club. Yeah, for movie so we club. will see the problems that he had coming back 
to America. And even though he was a celebrated track star and the hero of this Olympics, just did not have a very good life at home because of the society. The other thing I, th- I don't think Sebastian Coe is catching, and maybe some of our listeners outside the United States are not catching, is there are a lot of right-wing pundits and politicians who are still pushing very hard for a full-scale boycott for Beijing 2022. So this diplomatic boycott is President Biden's way of doing something without Mm -hmm. hurting the athletes. So that may be lost in translation as well. But yeah, the minute you mention Nazis. (laughs) Oh, that was real. And I just looked at that and said, really, Sebco? And it, to me, it was just like, did we not learn from Avery Brundage? Or is it just, have you gotten to an age where you just turn into that guy? Does everybody become Avery Brundage at a certain age? I hope not. I really do. Or I, I hope not every IOC member for crying out loud. But <sighs> that just was, it was just horrifying to hear him say that and say that, well, you need to maintain diplomatic relationships and ask the tough questions. Are they really going to get to ask tough questions at the Olympics? Come on. They're going to have canapes and champagne. Right? You're there to watch a show. You're there to see China put on its better best shoes and admire them for the show that they put on and who knows how much it cost. I think we need more stuffing. I think so, too. (laughs) Because I've had a little too much of this garbage. (laughs) So come on, IOC members. Do better. Yeah. If there's going to be diplomatic boycott, suck it up. You chose Beijing. And, and I know you chose it over Kazakhstan, but let's get some better choices. Lauren Jackson has won four medals in four races. She has. She is fantastic. And John Schuster is going to his fifth Olympics. I know. And you know what else? Biathlon season starts this weekend. Claire Egan is off and shooting. Yeah. So, okay. Better mood. Thank you. <laughs> All right, that will do it for this week. Let us know what you remember from Tokyo 2020. We love hearing from you. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. Get at us on social at flamealivepod. And be sure to join Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week, we will have hopefully an, an update on the modern pentathenovella because it is fantastic what's going on. So until then, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive.